Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you the stories that matter, not only in business and finance, but also in the worlds of science, technology, climate change and more. To find out more, go to ft.com slash newagenda. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that gives you your essential weekly science fix. I'm Penny Sarche, New Scientist News Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. Joining us in the pod today are New Scientist journalists Lillian Anekwe and Donna Liu. Lillian's one of our news editors and Donna's a reporter on the news desk. Hi. Hello. Hi. On this week's show, we're really mixing it up. We've got an incredible story about a young woman who was born with only half a brain. And then, for Valentine's Day, we're looking at the use of drugs to replicate love or even cure a broken heart. But first, we've got the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. So I was going to come in today and tell you uh, about how the number of cases seem to have been declining and that might suggest that the containment measures in China are working. But actually, that's all changed overnight. So uh, the 12th of February is currently being described as uh, the deadliest day. Uh, There's been a huge uptick in the number of deaths reported, uh, 242 in Hubei yesterday, and nearly 15,000 new cases reported from the province in China. So that's a huge jump compared to what we've been seeing. So the big debate this week has really been about uh, how you define a case. So uh, at one point it it came out that asymptomatic positives uh, weren't being included in official case numbers. So that's where people have maybe been tested as part of trying to track who's been infected. And they've come up positive in a test, but they've got no symptoms. So it it turns out that some of these people were being quarantined, but they weren't being counted in in the official numbers. So that might explain some of it. Uh, I read this morning, February 13, as we're recording this, that uh, they they may also be changing the way that they're diagnosing cases. So previously, with positive and negative tests, people had these nucleic acid testing kits. Um, And if you were symptomatic, you you got this test and um, the diagnosis was made. Um, But just recently, Hubei's health commission uh, has changed the rules slightly. So now they're actually using lung scans to clinically diagnose people, apparently. 
so uh, just a few days ago, um, the models were sort of suggesting that there were probably loads of asymptomatic and really mild cases uh, that hadn't gone detected. And that was quite good news because that would bring the death rate much lower. And, and uh, people were predicting that it was about 1%. Now we have to go back and rethink that now that there's been this big jump um, in the number of deaths. And the the disease itself has an official name now, COVID-19. That's the decision of the World Health Organization. But COVID-19 seems to me a slightly confusing designation uh, because that doesn't refer to the virus itself, but uh, to the disease. And the virus has a different name. Yeah, so um, a different panel of the virologists came out with uh, their own name for the virus this week. So up until now, we've been calling it 2019 NCOV or NCOV, depending on your interpretation. And so uh, the N there means novel. And that was, um, I think, put forward by the WHO. But uh, virologists have decided that actually it's not that novel of a virus. It's really similar to SARS. Mm. Uh, So that's why they've come up with this new name, which I still haven't got off the tip of my tongue. I think it's SARS-CoV-2. So essentially they've decided it's so similar to SARS that the name should reflect that. Yeah, uh, which um, it makes sense, I think, if you're a virologist, but uh, to the general public, it's a bit less, uh, It's you know, it's not SARS. It's not spreading the same way as SARS. It, it's behaving quite differently. Mm-hmm. It's just a virus that happens to be very genetically similar to a previous outbreak. So the big question now is, is do we know how big this is going to go? Now we have a bit more understanding of, it, of the death rate. It may be getting worse. Um, and are we prepared for it if it does go to full pandemic status? So I think it really depends on still whether containment's going to work in China, and we're still waiting to see whether that works. So um, the all over the UK media this week, there's been the case of um, the man who went to the British man who went to a conference in Singapore. He uh, brought the virus unwittingly back with him to Brighton in the UK via a ski resort in France, and so there's been a lot of contact tracing going on, finding out who he came into contact with, putting people in quarantine, uh, tracking down the cases. If it continues just to be a small trickle of people coming out of China with the virus, then rich nations like the UK and US are actually quite well placed to do that. And they've done a really good job this week. So the thinking is that if it continues to be like that, this will essentially become a virus that's widespread in China and occasionally seeds other outbreaks uh, without going pandemic. But the question is, if it then becomes, uh, if the number of cases coming over becomes much more, then pretty much no country really is going to be able to clamp down on that. And and that's when we would get a pandemic. We still don't have one yet. And so apparently the UK is preparing for a pandemic on the level of swine flu in 2009. Um, So that infected about a quarter of the global population and killed up to about 500,000 people. Mm. So... That that was really startling to me. I'd kind of forgotten that it was that many or even didn't know that it was that many. And then I kind of reflected that that was a real indictment of my Eurocentric thinking. And and in fact, all those that half a million people, um, most of those were deaths in Africa and and Southeast Asia. Mm, Yeah. And and this week has been a there's been a real push to um, try to get African nations ready. So last week, I think only two countries in Africa had testing capability. um, But there's been a lot of training going on. Uh, By the end of this week, 29 countries can test for it. And they're really looking um, at like strengthening the surveillance networks they've had, um, which have actually helped contain things like Ebola. And so there's a lot of effort going on there because, yeah, the impacts in uh, poorer nations uh, could be could be quite huge. And Africa doesn't have any cases yet, does it? Not reported. Um, it might have some unreported. Thanks, Penny. 
now it's time for Climate Hope or Doom. We pick a story from this week's news and look at what it means for the climate crisis. Penny. So this week we have the news that bumblebees are threatened by climate change. No, so it's a doom segment. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, We did already know that bumblebee habitats were shrinking in some areas of Northern America and Europe. But we didn't know yet whether this was because of climate change or some of the other many environmental problems that are going on at the moment. And now we know it really is climate change. Boo. (laughs) Boo. Uh, Scientists looked at temperature and rainfall records at 15,000 bumblebee habitats and they found that changes in climate made the sites less likely to be occupied by bumblebees. Well, bumblebees are large and furry and they're adapted to chilly temperatures. So I guess it's only to be expected that they are going to have particular trouble uh, adapting to warmer temperatures. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, they're big and fluffy, so it's going to be more of a problem for them. Um, So that that makes sense. Obviously for humanity and and just for the love of of amazing insects, it's total doom to lose bumblebees um, just for their own sake. But they're really important pollinators and we're really already struggling with pollinator declines. So it's, it's really bad news. Yeah, so, you know, we already know uh, honeybees are, are in big trouble and lots of other insects. You know, there's been a talk of a, a insect apocalypse and maybe that's overblown or not, but still insect numbers seem to be down. Uh, so, yeah, this is a definite climate doom story, but is there anything you can offer us here a way out? Uh, well, obviously, people talk a lot about stuff you can do in your own gardens to make things more bee-friendly, um, but realistically, as the temperatures keep rising... Or- the only way we can really beat this is we actually have to very seriously tackle climate change. Mm. Probably going to be the answer to a lot of these kinds of segments. Yeah. Not to add too much gloom and doom to an already bleak story, uh, but apparently what might make the problem worse is that uh, farmed bees and native bees seem to be interbreeding. We covered a story late last year, I think some Spanish researchers found that a potential threat is that um, southern bumblebees in... They were looking at bees in Spain, and they found that southern bumblebees might lose their adaptations to warm environments as a result of this interbreeding, which is not great given the warming Mm. climate. Next up, we've got quite a surprising story about a woman who was born with half her brain missing. Despite this, she has an average IQ, she actually excels at reading, and she's planning on going to university. It's an incredible example of just how adaptable the brain can be. Jessica Hamsley was our reporter on this, and Rowan caught up with her earlier this week. So Jess, what's the story? So this is an incredible story. It made my jaw drop as I heard it and I was reporting it. Um, but this uh, this young woman now, she's 18, but when she was born, she was missing her entire left hemisphere. Instead of having um, half of her brain, she's literally just got a sack of um, cerebrospinal fluid. But but she's basically all right. But yeah, she's doing fine. They t- test her on language skills, on her spatial skills, on her memory. And in, in reading, she's actually above average. It's quite incredible. So, uh, you know, how do they think that she manages to compensate to such an extent? Um, so when this girl was born, uh, she had a complete... The, her mother had a completely normal pregnancy. The birth was fine. Um, it was only when she was seven months old that her parents noticed that she was kind of clutching her thumb a little bit more than you might expect. Um, so she had some follow-up tests and the brain scan, and that's when doctors found out that she was literally missing her entire left hemisphere. So we know the brain is really flexible and adaptable, especially if something happens to it at a young age. You can get over quite a lot of, you know, problems to the brain and or damage to the brain. Is this just a, like an extreme example of how the brain is so adaptable and flexible? 
whatever's happened to her brain, possibly some kind of stroke or something, happened well, while she was a fetus, most likely. It's, they don't really know when. It's impossible to say exactly when it happened. But actually, we don't know if um, her brain is adapting so much because it's, it might have, the injury might have been there from so early in her life that it's, her brain has just developed that way. But um, somehow her, the right side of her brain has compensated for missing the entire left side of her brain. Yeah, and so the left side of the brain is the one that controls our language ability, right? The left side of the brain is the, one, is the half that's kind of specialised for language. Um, right. Both sides contribute. But the left side is kind of the more important half for, for language. I mean, you normally see this kind of connectivity between the two halves of the brain. The two halves are connected by this strip of tissue called the corpus callosum. She doesn't really have much of that. So it's almost like everything's kind of been pushed onto the right side of the brain. She's got more white matter, in uh, which is the, the kind of brain tissue that is responsible for communicating between different parts of the brain. She's got more white matter in regions that are responsible for language. So it's almost like her her right side of her brain has taken on some of the functions that would you'd normally see in the left side of the brain. Right. And what's been the cost of this? Because there must have must be something she's missing out on, is there? If if you know the brain is is a busy organ, right? And it takes up loads of energy and demand on our on our bodies. Mm-hmm. So if you take away half of it, what you know, what's it not being able to do? So I I asked the team that have been um, researching her brain about this and they said that she's remarkably capable so as we said she performs well in in tests of her spatial skills her IQ um, her reading and language um, what she does struggle with is movement on the right side of her body a little bit because each half of the brain is kind of controlling the movement on the opposite side of the body so she does struggle with that a little bit and and also they did mention that she has a little bit of social awkwardness but don't we all on occasion <laughs> yeah. um okay so if if she's doing really well she's doing a, above average in some areas of her language do we know if her intellectual capacity would differ if she had the whole of her left side of the brain it's impossible to know isn't it I, so they the people who've been studying her have also been studying her younger sibling as well as a, a group of other children who've been developing typically and they've said that her younger sibling her younger brother is also kind of above average and he has a typical brain yeah he has a typical brain so that that they they the researchers are suggesting that that means maybe there's something in the way they're being brought up or their genetics that what about means her parents they would are, be... are they like you know artists or writers <laughs> or something like that you know is yeah. there some clue there I don't know what the parents do but I do know they, that they have been very supportive of her and that has been really important to kind of have that input from a very young age so she's been having therapy for, from a young age um, when the scientists were testing her when she was a baby they were kind of counting the number of words that her parents would say to her in when they were playing together and that was in the high, in the normal to high range, but um, but that kind of input that she was getting as a baby was probably really important. Okay, and it turns out that it's not that unusual for uh, children, especially, to undergo operations to remove parts of their brain, or maybe the whole hemisphere, or to to disconnect the the uh, that corpus callosum connection between the brain the brain halves. Is that right? Yeah, but I was absolutely astounded to learn about these other cases. Um, I was speaking to. Uh, a clinical lead at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, um, which treats children. And she told me that she wasn't that surprised that this girl is doing so well because um, she's seen children, between 11 and 15 children a year at this hospital have half of their brains removed 
surgically. And they actually do quite well, which is just mind-boggling. Yeah, I can't get my head round how poorly you must be to for the treatment to be the removal of half of your brain. Yeah, this is quite severe epilepsy, so these children are having multiple seizures a day. Um, but she was telling me that she had... She had one case, a nine-year-old boy who was mute for his life. And then after this operation, he learned to speak. Another 10-year-old girl who had this operation to remove half of her brain and then she was up and playing within a few days. It's just incredible. What about, um, not to go too sci-fi on it, but um, are there any indications of how we might get treatments for people with either brain disorders or neurodegenerative disorders or who've had a brain injury of some kind of stroke or, you know, maybe a gunshot to the head that hasn't killed them, you know. Is there any, anything we, we can know about how we might be able to sort of regrow parts of the brain? There are a few projects underway to try and do that. Um, they might involve implanting stem cells in the brain, for example, or some people are trying to stimulate brain cells using electricity with an implant in the brain but it's 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 early days and I and I think it's different with um, this girl who was born without half her brain because she doesn't really have anything you wouldn't want to go in you wouldn't want to go and put some brain tissue in her where the left hemisphere would be because her brain has, has adapted without that. So what's the prognosis for this young woman because she's done amazingly well and she's passed her SAT exams and she's wanting to go to university, right? Yeah, that's right. So she was she was part of this um, research project um, between the ages of 14 months and 16 years. But she's 18 years old now, and as you say, she's completed her SATs. She's based in the US. Um, and she's passed. She's apparently doing quite well. She's looking to start university. So, uh, yeah, it looks as though life will continue for her without any problems. OK, thanks very much, Jess. Time out, time out. We're going to tell you a bit more about the Financial Times who are sponsoring this week's episode. We're living in a world of innovation and fragmentation. We certainly are. The Financial Times identifies the stories that matter, like whether a green society can keep consuming and looking at which technological trends will shape the decade. News outlets across the globe have spent much time talking about the coronavirus outbreak, as have we. Indeed. The Financial Times have been doing an incredible job marrying the human aspects with the financial. In a recent article, they explain why the disease has led to the Chinese government sacking their two top officials in Hubei and detail the implications for the Asian markets. And a really fascinating article, relevant to much of what we talk about at New Scientist, is the FT's Can the World Kick Its Oil Habit? explaining how despite the political toxicity of oil, global demand for it rose last year to a record 100 million barrels a day. The Financial Times is your trusted guide to the new normal. Join the debate at ft.com slash newagenda. That's our sci-fi alert. Rowan, what is it this week? Right, so this is an outer space one. Astronomers have known for years that there are these things called fast radio bursts. These are radio waves, like really intense radio waves, that flash incredibly brightly for just a few milliseconds. And they flash with the brightness of hundreds of millions of suns. So even though they're only a fraction of a second and they come from distant parts of the galaxy, uh, we've, we've been detecting them. But scientists don't really know what causes them. People have proposed that they're some kind of a black hole or there is a spin, they're a spinning star called a pulsar or even that they're signs of alien civilization. But they're just random flashes, right? Well, they've been thought to be random, but now a telescope in Canada 
has found a pattern in one source of these fast radio bursts. So it is aliens. Yeah, it's, ali- it's never aliens, unfortunately. It's never aliens. It's never aliens. <laughs> well, people want it to be aliens, but it's never aliens. But there is the idea that the flashes come from an alien beacon. Um, but one astronomer said that the pattern of flashes that they've detected is too long to be an efficient beacon. So, you know, we just don't know. We'll never know. It could be aliens, maybe. <laughs> I'm holding out. Just sending us a message really slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so the the connection to sci-fi, is, it reminds me of uh, Carl Sagan's book Contact, uh, which was made into a film with Jodie Foster, Uh, where astronomers picked up a pattern in a radio signal from deep space and they decode the pattern and find instructions for making a warp drive to visit aliens. But I'm not saying that's what's in the pattern that they've just discovered in Canada. We're a deeply romantic bunch here at New Scientist, so we didn't want to miss the chance to show how we feel about love on Valentine's Day. But if you're not in the mood for love, or if you're feeling the pain of a broken heart, you might be able to heal it with drugs. One of the scientists calls it anti-love biotechnology. Lillian, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so not to overpromise, but this is the idea that we can not so much take love drugs, but that we're already taking drugs that have an effect on our emotions. So alcohol is one that we all know about, but there are other chemicals and medicines that are potentially influencing our emotions, our physiology and our neurochemistry. So hormonal contraceptives could subtly influence mate choices. So we know that women's behaviour apparently changes subtly if they're on the contraceptive pill or not. And antidepressants can change our libido and our sex drive. So I spoke with uh, Julian Savalescu, who is a doctor turned philosopher, and he says it's a scandal that these drugs have been affecting our interpersonal relationships for years without anyone formally studying their effect in this context. Right, and he's got kind of skin in the game, as it were, right? Because he got interested in all this, didn't he? Because uh, a long-term relationship of his ended, and that's how he got it. So is he blaming you know, this, these these under-the-radar drugs for the end of his relationship? I I had a chat with him. He was in a, a long-term, long-term relationship for 15 years that fell apart and uh, that piqued his interest, it's fair mm. to say. But he was studying uh, human enhancement in other domains. So, for example, cognitive enhancement and enhancement in sport. And when his long-term relationship broke down, he decided uh, to look into this because he felt that love is just another domain of the human experience, which has a biological component. So it's more that it's just something that he's really interested in. He's got a background in it and he teamed up with one of his colleagues who's a cognitive scientist, Brian Earp. And they've written a book looking into this area called Love is the Drug to explore the idea further. What about oxytocin? And this is... People call this the cuddle chemical, and I know like scientists hate that word, but um, that's what it's kind of known as. Um, but people apparently use this in nasal sprays to boost their chances of falling in love, or maybe they try and induce others to fall in love with them. Is there anything in this? Well, yeah, there is a lot of hype about the so-called cuddle hormone, as you say, and they do uh, they do devote a chapter to exploring the use of oxytocin, which you can buy on Amazon, as you said, as a, as a nasal spray. There's a lot of doubt about whether or not that's effective, whether or not just inject, squeezing it into your nose is a format in which it will have any effect. Mm. So they do discuss it in the book, but they stress that there's limited evidence, really, that this works, and they warn you, they caveat it quite heavily and warn the reader to take it with a, a pinch of salt. Mm. 
One interesting point that they make is that chemicals are just chemicals. So oxytocin, SSRIs, which are antidepressants, they say that the distinction between what works as a conventional medicine and what works as a different type of chemical or what's an illicit or an illegal drug is really driven more by society's values and what we decide as a society is a medicine and useful and isn't and is illegal. And their argument in the book really is that if we can somehow figure out an ethical framework of moving beyond that as a society, it opens up the possibility to explore the use of other drugs like psychedelics, like psilocybin, and expanding it from how it's currently used in a very limited way by psychiatrists to treat relationship breakdown caused by things like trauma and it's used as a, in some circumstances as a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Is there a way that we can move beyond that and trying these drugs to solve relationship problems? Yeah, I mean, I, I know that psilocybin is used um, sometimes, again, in a limited way to treat depression in, in controlled cases, but I've never heard it to be tr- used as uh, to treat you know relationship breakdowns that's kind of amazing sort of wonder if something like mdma you know where famously ecstasy makes you feel loved up whether something like that would be of more interest did they mention that at all yeah so they did discuss that and again that's being used in a limited way not so much anymore but there are a lot of experiments uh, in the 1980s using it um, in a kind of controlled safe environment as part of couples counseling and therapy again for people with relationship problems that had uh, been triggered in some way by a trauma. Isn't there that famous study in octopuses, octopi? I'm not Mm. sure what the plural is. Octopuses. Octopuses, (laughs) which are solitary animals, and when they give them MDMA, they seem to cuddle together. Well, there is another um, example of uh, in prairie voles, Mm. um, and these are really very interesting animals. They're monogamous mammals, um, and they form a lifetime bond. But if you give them a drug that blocks oxytocin then they suddenly become polygamous. Um, So you can sever a long-term relationship by uh, blocking the action of oxytocin. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They discuss those really famous uh, prairie vole experiments in the book as well. I guess the problem with that then is there's no way of having a specific action. So you would then sever all your relationships and all your friendships. Not ideal. Yeah, seems a bit drastic. Can I um can I just be a bit skeptical? Um, how um how big of a deal is this really? Because I can see that with um things like illegal drugs, they have a big effect on your brain, and, and maybe antidepressants do too. But a lot of that oxytocin work has been quite debunked. Like we we know it plays a role in uh, mother infant bonding and in relationships, but we haven't really been able to manipulate that very well. Yeah. Well, they say, and I asked them this, you know, how strong is the evidence base essentially? And they did admit that it's not that strong, and yeah. uh, probably we have been right to be sceptical, although they would say that the reason that there is the lack of evidence is because we haven't really studied these drugs for this specific purpose or that we've kind of ignored the interpersonal effects that they've had. And so we might have had a wealth of evidence all of this time if people had been maybe uh, thought a little bit more laterally about the kinds of effects that these uh, that these medicines can have. So I think it's right to be sceptical at the moment. There are a lot of caveats and ifs and buts and just because of the subject area, we know it's not something which is straightforward and biological and that you can quantify like that. But their argument is, OK, we don't have the evidence that we need, but what's stopping us from looking for or starting from now to gain the evidence that we need? That's all for this week, and thanks for listening. Just a reminder, you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. 
And if you'd like to subscribe, there's a special offer for podcast listeners. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Yep, just enter POD20 at checkout on our website to get your subscription discount. Do get in touch with us on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. Let us know your thoughts on the show and tell us what you think the most interesting or important scientific news stories were this week. And tell all your friends about us. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to the show at the usual place you get your podcast. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Bye. 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 This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.